a podcast one production. So when the music stops and there's an election lost, then what? How does a party and its people pick up the pieces? And what is, to use a key term in politics, the strategy? I'm Anna Peacock and we've covered winning on Peacock Politics. Christopher Pine, last series, he was quite chuffed, as you can imagine. But I want to know how life goes on inside a party after it's had its balloons popped. And more intrinsically, the strategies used to inflate some new balloons. Dr John Hewson led the Liberal Party in the early 90s and knows well what the Labor Party is going through now. But lessons were obviously learnt back then because the Libs in the 90s came back next time and won and stayed in power for 11 years. John, thanks for your time. You're now an interested observer in the political process. (laughs) Um, I think you're the first leader of a major party we've had on this podcast. I think we've had people on that wanted to be leaders of a major political party on this podcast, but thank you for your time, mate. Much appreciated. Well, delighted to be here. Thank you. Interested observer these days, yeah? Well, no, frustrated observer. Oh, okay. You know, <clears throat> I um, started in politics in the 70s in the Fraser government, working for Lynch and Howard and was either chief advisor, chief of staff and, and for Malcolm, of course. Ended up going into politics myself in 87 uh, to 94, 95, I should say, but I've my interest has just been public policy and good government. So when I went into politics in the 70s, I mean, it was in the belief that good um, evidence-based public policy would be good politics and good government with a relatively short lag. And today it's short-term politics and short-termism that's just making sure that we don't have any good government, we don't have much government at all, actually. We limp from one election to the next and the current Prime Minister is still operating like he's in opposition, you know, he's still mm. sort of sort of trying to wedge the opposition and set tests for them and, you know, and what about governing? And there's just noise and we're going to make some more noise over the next half an hour good. or so. Um, you've seen the, the good moments and the not so good moments involved in mm. politics, both as a leader and mm. behind the scenes in trying to make a government. But I want to ask first up, it might sound like a brutal question, but what's the process to start recovery after an election loss? Because there's one political party in Australia as we sit here right now going through that process, and I'm fascinated to know how they pick themselves up and and regenerate themselves. Well, I've had two experiences. In 1990, when I became leader, of course, after a couple of attempts by um, Howard and Peacock to win the, the um, prime no. ministership in, in the 80s. No relation, by the way. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, they, they, the party was, was uh, in early 1990, I said we had three challenges, basically. One was to... Um, re-establish unity because it had been Peacock versus Howard disunity as well as some disunity between the Liberals and Nationals. So we had to put that behind us. The second thing was we had zero policy credibility. Howard's tax policy in 87 election campaign didn't add up. In the 1990 campaign, um, (laughs) uh, Peacock couldn't remember the health policy. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so we had to start from scratch. And the third thing was we had a party organisation that just couldn't match it to the Labor Party on the ground. It was a an anachronistic structure that was set up in the 40s by Menzies and it had never moved with the time so the Labor Party, backed by the union movement, were a much more effective campaigning force. So they were my three challenges. I said it will take us six years to do that. We probably can't win in three and we didn't. I didn't get six but um, (laughs) the point was, I think, accurate. Um, And so, you know, rebuilding credibility takes a lot. The the unity problem was tested almost immediately in my case because we had a great big wool crisis where the wool wool growers had been buying their own wool at an inflated price relative to the world market. Mm. (laughs) 
on debt and storing it, <laughs> you know, sticking it away and hoping the problem would go away. Well, of course, you know, that was never going to happen. That tested, obviously, the unity between the two parties and within the Liberal Party because we had some big sheep girls in the Liberal Party. So Liberal Party, National Party within the coalition. Liberal Party, yes, sorry, within the coalition. And so, uh, you know, you just, uh, in terms of policy credibility, we worked really hard to, I, I involved everyone in the parties in policy development. We broke it up, obviously, to all the areas of public policy and we decided that we'd take a large-scale package, which became the fight-back package, to the 93 election with a clear-cut, uh, delineated, uh, documented policy position in every area of public policy, thousands of pages mm. of detail, which were released about 12 or 18 months beforehand, now seen because I lost as the longest political suicide note in history because it was very easy for the you know, for the opposition, the Keating opposition, to just... Uh, Pick apart. To take, take shots at it. They mm. didn't destroy the, the integrity of it, all the numbers, but uh, it was easy to run a scare campaign, and uh, which is what he did pretty effectively. And... Uh, but still, that rebuilding process in the early 90s was fundamental to the government, for the, to the LNP winning government in 96 mm. and then staying in government. Uh, today, of course, as you say, the Labor Party's got a big, big uh, internal <laughs> process now to decide you know, exactly why they lost and what they could or couldn't have done differently and what they should do moving forward. What do you do? Do you, do you get everyone in a big room and say, oi, this could go really bad. This could go worse than it is right now after we've just lost an election. Can we mm. please get on the same page? I know that sounds unbelievably simplistic, but is it along those lines or well, is it a different I, you approach? you know, I did the, the three points I made, I made in the first party meeting after I became leader. I said, this is going to be our agenda. And then I made sure I delivered on it. I mean, everybody had a very active role to play in policy development at whatever level of the process I established. So you weren't and an autocrat. No, no, I mean, I, I had a pretty clear idea which direction we'd go. Mm. But, uh, you know, we to the extent we had experts, say, in health and education and so on, we put those key people in to run those policy areas supported by a team and each of the areas were broken up into elements of the policy that needed to be addressed. In the end, you ended up with a definitive and uh, you know, well-defined policy in terms of each of those areas and... Um, most of them really embrace that with great enthusiasm on the basis that, you know, we've, we are going to stand for something, we're going to believe in something. And uh, that was a very different world to what you have in short-term politics where the name of the game is, you know, score points on the other side, shift blame to the other side, you know, never never actually talk about the policy issue in any detail. Each day is another day, you know, you, you move on to another subject, another location. Uh, you know, it's it's just a completely different world to... You know, when I was leader, I also took a view that we needed to be constructive as an opposition. That is, um, instead of just disagreeing with the government, um, you know, clearly if we did have disagreement in a policy era, we'd make those points, but we'd make them on the basis of evidence and substance. But we also saw our role as trying to set the agenda, get out in front of the government, call on them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise find it easy to do. And so, uh, you know, they didn't get too much resistance to a lot of the reform agenda. We were in front of the government on financial sector deregulation, licensing foreign banks, floating the currency, you know, putting interest rates up to, uh, to avoid a recession, uh, cutting tariff protection, making commitments to the First World War. We led all these issues. And uh, so it's easy in government in those days. You just stand up and say, well, we, you know, they may not do it all, but they do enough of it to, uh, to, um, to, to move forward. Today, of course... Um, if uh, the opposition proposes something, the government immediately says, you know, oh, you know like a, 
I think in the last election there was the negative gearing proposal. That was immediately dispensed with by the government, even though they were planning to do it themselves. Uh, they just said, oh, no, a new big housing tax from the, from the opposition uh, and anything else that they proposed became a new tax or a new... So it was an easy negative. thing easy thing to scare on no, it's rather a, than it's actually... Ne- it's, it's negativity that's taken uh, taken hold. I mm. mean, uh, and uh, so you don't have... The chance of getting a bipartisan position on an issue of substance, say something like climate, for example, it just doesn't exist. It's easier to score points, blame them for renewables, blame them for blackouts, blame them for whatever whether or not it's true. The Labor Party obviously trying to get on with life now and, and mm. rebuild and, and try and refocus for three years' time when the, the next federal election comes around as we sit here right now. Um, victory has a thousand fathers, though, so it'd be mm. foolish of them to not look back on how it all went down, but the, the statement is victory has a thousand fathers or mothers or, or something like that. How many um, mothers and fathers does defeat have? <laughs> well, that's it, you know. You are, a, 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 as a loser, you feel it pretty strongly. I mean, I made a personal decision in 93 after the election. Really, I'd made a decision not to run again. And then I saw that, oh, God, you know, the likely candidate who would win would be Howard, who I'd worked for for seven or eight years. And he'd worked for me for my time as leader. And I could see two issues that we didn't deal with in 93 that were going to be very important. One was the Republic, Keating was going to run that, and Native Title. And Howard would have divided the party on both of those right down the middle and undone all the unity and policy discipline that I thought we'd worked hard to create. So I stayed on to make that transition, to start and move those two issues to a point where they would not be divisive. Then I recognised that I'd move on. But, I mean, that was a a personal decision, probably a stupid decision from the point of view of political career because I could have gone to the backbench and just sat there Mm. and, uh, you know, come again. But um, it wasn't the way I looked at it. A lot of politics is bluster and, and ego and putting yourself out there and mm. kind of I look at some politicians and think, how do they let some of that stuff just bounce off them? It, surely there's got to be some personal personal intake on, on what's being said and, and you were up against the guy Paul Keating in, in 93 who could be vicious with his mm. language. I don't know what he was like as a bloke but in mm. terms of what he said, I don't know what he meant but what he said, he could be pretty frontal with it all. Does any of that seep in on a personal level? No, you look, you feel it, but, I mean, I'd been realistic in a couple of ways. I mean, one, in the Fraser government, I used to see the government responding to editorials in the newspaper in the Cabinet, right? And I thought you can't run a government by responding to some story that somebody's planted. Mm. So as a, pers- as a personal discipline, I never read anything that, I, that anybody ever said about me. Wow. Never paid any attention to any feature articles, anything. And they'd ring me up and say, what do you think of the piece? I said, I don't know, I haven't read it. And that would annoy the hell out of a journalist. But uh, that was just my way of dealing with it. I just didn't want to be part of it and didn't want to engage. I said to my press team, look, if there are factual errors, ring them up and correct the facts, but just that, you know, and, but forget it uh, apart from that. And I think that's, that's an important part of, of, of resisting it. In Keating's case, I mean, I would say without exaggeration, we respected each other. And although he was in all, all into the colour and movement, mm. uh, you know, and a lot of name calling and stuff, I, I found some some glitches in that uh, armory, you know, where he'd borrowed a lot of those uh, lines from, you know, like a dog returning to its vomit. It had come from Jack Lang, who'd been his mentor. I went back and searched all this stuff out. It used to annoy the hell out of him. Uh, and um, on one day I called him as he, he used to get up and leave Parliament. I'd move a matter of public importance. Oh, 
government would leave. I'd be talking to an empty chamber, apart from a few of my own behind me. And I called out to him one day and I said, hey, you? He said, you talking to me? I said, yes. He said, what do you want? I said, I, you know that I know that you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I got your measure. And he got really upset. <laughs> and it uh, took me 10 minutes to comprehend but, you know, that. There was that. But look, after the 93 election, he apologised to me. The first day back in Parliament, he said, look, I'm sorry for all those names I called you and the things I said. I didn't mean them. Well, no, he wasn't too sorry because he was sitting on the side no, of the no, chamber. No, no, but that... he just said, I mean, he said, I didn't expect to win. I could have lost to you, he said. Mm. I, I could accept the fact that I could lose to you, whereas he would never accept in time that he would lose to Howard. Uh, but he said, you know, I've, I, you have to understand, John, that, and I'd never thought about this, but politics to me is just a game and I'll say I'll do whatever I have to do to win. And that was the start of this short-termism, that negativity, you know, making politics a game, not a government, not a process of government. And I'd never thought about that, but when you think about the way he looked at it, he'd done that consistently. He turned on Hawke to win the leadership from Hawke. Hawke had taken a position in health, a policy to have a co-payment, which has become a bit of an issue in recent years, uh, on uh, an access to Medicare, and uh, Keating went around to the backbench saying, I'll abolish that if you vote for me rather than Hawke. So he was already playing the game internally. On the GST, for example, he he lost an argument with Hawke about introducing that, said he'd die fighting for it, except when it came to me, he decided to run against me on that basis. So, you know, you have to understand that that negativity is a key element today, dominates today. I mean, you do not have a chance of a sensible discussion on some of the big issues. Um, and um, even things like climate or you know, New Start or tax reform or any of the bigger issues, they don't want to get together in the national interest. They still prefer to score points on each other. So it, that's a frustration that um, that I, I find difficult. And, and you know, today, I mean, it's not so much the name calling, that just sort of washes off you. But uh, the fact that they're squandering opportunities to govern really does hurt. It, and I guess in opposition, is that the hard thing to weigh up now that the Labor Party might be going through now is to, okay, how much do we pay attention to the here and the now mm. and trying to bite at the government to, to pick mm. holes in them as opposed to just recalibrating, resetting a strategy mm. that will in the long-term interest or medium-term interest benefit the party. It's hard to see sometimes because there's this fog of emotion around. Yeah, that's right. They've, they've got to, I mean, they've got to start, obviously, they will start by going, I guess, seat by seat and looking at people and issues and so on as, and, and age groups and, you know, cutting the electorate in different ways and, and understanding so why... Break it down why, micro. why yeah. I think they should, to understand why in certain seats they didn't do as well as they thought. Um, they did slightly better in some seats too. You know, they, it is a balancing thing and a lot of it does turn on candidates and campaigns and so on as much as the, the image. But their big issue is to recognise that Shorten was their major issue. I mean, he was Morrison's best asset and all Morrison did was play on that in a marketing sense. Uh, and then there were layers of policy which bit in certain seats in certain areas, like some of the stuff that frightened the older Australians about, you know, losing their pension entitlements or their superannuation or death might tax. have a death duty or something, you know. None of that was actually factual and they didn't make any attempt to dissuade people during the campaign. So there were campaign errors as well as policy errors. But I think one of the, the big challenge for them is, okay, you've got to decide in the end what do you believe in, what do you stand for, what do you want to be remembered for? That's gone out of politics, you know, this idea of having principles mm. and being in there and fighting for something you believe in. And so when it comes to things like climate, I hear that they're going to back off some of their stuff on, on targets and, uh, 
you know, their targets were pretty modest compared to where the country's got to be by 2050. I mean, OK, you can have a debate as to whether you should have just made that the issue of the day, but uh, we do need to make a transition to a low-carbon society by the middle of this century. It is the biggest economic, social, political and moral issue we've got. And uh, so, you know, if you want to be seen to be backing off that yet again, I mean, it's staggering. It's, it's, uh, but in a world where they feel that that impacted them on them in Queensland, for example, they'll probably say, oh, well, you know, we, we lost those Queensland seats because of our stand on climate, where probably they lost their Queensland seats more because of Shorten's unpopularity fed day in, day out, minute by minute, by Clive Palmer's ads on radio and mm. television. It just saturated. <laughs> a, you know, there's one a message out there. They was It was out there. And so they didn't do as well in Queensland as they, well, they, they didn't do it all well, but they didn't do anywhere near what they expected. And so that, that, that to be objective, okay, you can see what factors worked mm. against them. Then they've still got to decide what do we want to be remembered for? Do we want to define ourselves on the climate issue? Do we want to define ourselves on tax reform or do we want to find ourselves on, you know, um, inequality, which is one of their big, big, uh, you know, I think their class warfare stuff, they'll just, just ditch that. and It doesn't work in Australia. But but um, I think they're, they're very tough decisions. So they have to, and that, it goes right through to the candidates they took to the election, the policies they ran, the strategies they ran on those policies, uh, how they handled uh, the the campaign is as as it unfolded. A lot of it, Shorten got to be appear to be more arrogant. You know, stepping back, not being prepared to answer questions, not being prepared to talk about costings or impacts. Or you know, well, mm. if you've got a controversial policy, you've got to have an answer. And uh, you know, something like do you or do you not support Adani? You've got to say yes or no in the end. You can't say, oh, you know, maybe sort of hedge it, which is what they did. <laughs> Half pregnant. So, yeah. you know, that allows the other side to say, well, they're, you know, they're to assert a position. So it, it's not going to be an easy outcome and it's a mm. painful process, but, and they should do it pretty much. I know they've got Craig Emerson uh, driving a lot of that. He's a pretty, very, very balanced guy. I mean, he understands these issues for many years of experience in government and out of government. But, um, you know, there are going to be a lot of people in there that don't want to listen to any of these conclusions either. So, mm. But in the end, they do, they want to pick a couple of things, I think, that they are going to continue with. Um, maybe they ditch some of the detail of some of those those issues, which they didn't address properly, but, you know, it's uh, not an enviable position to be in. It sounds like it, it, it gets back solely to, to strategy stroke policy and it, not so much setting it, but selling it mm. as well. And the, some of the things you talked about, the Labor Party in the last election, and um, I mean, you, <laughs> great example of you mm. in Yeah, we didn't the sell the fight back very well. But then three years later, it comes in. Essentially, funny, GST comes it's in. It's a fun, so. funny thing because I, I felt that we'd spent the best part of opposition being positive. You know, we hadn't really been all that negative at all. So I called a shadow cabinet meeting in the start of the election campaign and I said, right, I want a decision as you to... You said 93, how, is it? Yeah, 93. How yeah. much um, of a negative campaign do we run? And I put my position in favour of a 100% positive campaign. Forget the negative, forget the other side, forget Keating. Let's just get on and explain what we've got and sell what we've got. And I got rolled. Yeah. <laughs> there was one vote for that. <laughs> that was me. And they came down in favour of a predominantly negative campaign, attack Keating, make him your issue. 
that was never going to work in my view. But the organisation runs the campaign and, you you know, they come up with the ads and you're stuck with them. I made about 35 positive ads. I think they ran one and one late night uh, free spot on the ABC. You were the leader. Yeah, but you, so don't, you, get get to, a, you don't get to make those calls. And quite that? often, you know, you've seen instances in the past at state and federal level where the leaders grab the campaign and they run it out of their own office. Yeah. And Keating did that in 96. I don't think that worked very well. And Griner tried it. You know, the, that's the way it works. I mean, basically in the Liberal Party, Liberal National Party, policy is determined in the parliamentary party and the, the strategy organisational structure is run by the organisation. And not a good, sensible structure at all. Um, and you're left there like can, a... you know, you, you, you know, as a candidate, you're trying to fit in there somewhere. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, sometimes uh, I remember when I first became a candidate, I went to head office to sort of get some sort of some directions mm. and points and, you know, and I ended up just you know, designing my own core flutes and off I went, you know, <laughs> just did the whole damn thing myself. And... Um, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of individual campaigns. That's why sometimes they do much better in a seat than they imagine they'll do, mm. simply because a good candidate. Other times you, you do much worse in a seat because of the poor performance of a candidate, carrying a fair bit of baggage into the campaign, and you saw that a lot on both sides. They were, they were dropping candidates mm. in this election on both sides as you started the election campaign, which tells you that the pre-selection processes were pretty, pretty you know, rudimentary. So there are layers you've got to go right back and you're probably bringing the wrong people into politics these days. Too many people that have never done anything else from, you know, come out of university politics, never had a real job, work for minister, local government, union or something. They end up, you know, the skills you need to get pre-selected in a political party today are not going to stand you in, pretty good, in very good stead to run a major multi-billion dollar government department. So you see people that have never had a job suddenly running a great big portfolio like defence or education or health think, uh, you know, where's this going to go? They've just greased the, the, well, the right Well, you know, they've just got their the way, way to the top and they've yeah. got themselves into position. But when the crunch comes on an issue, I'm a firm believer that in the end you can't spin these things for too long before reality bites you, and that's particularly true in the economy. I mean, the government's running a line now, we've got a strong economy, whereas any economist who looks at the numbers says, oh, it ain't strong. You know, it's been flat for a year, wages are flat, house prices are, are falling, you know, debts are huge, household debts are record levels, and manufacturing's in decline, retail's in recession. You know, like you can say it's a strong economy. It just doesn't resonate with people who are struggling to pay the cost of living every week mm. and, um, you know, on flat wages. So in the end, those numbers work against them. But for a time, they'll run those arguments and they, they sustain them. And uh, if your game has never been to be genuinely interested in the issue, but you're just running the lines, don't be surprised if you get exposed on those lines. Because you're an economist. Mm. You were an economist, or mm. well, you still are. You, you never mm. lose it, I guess. You're, no. you're pretty still good at doing a tax return, one, yeah. I'd imagine, as well. Um, maybe help me with mine after this. But, um, but with that sense, you, you've come into politics with a, a clear understanding, yeah, of, I, a I, big I, understanding of one certain area at least. So you're not seeing that in recent years. There's just career politicians. No, no, there's career politicians. I mean, some of them like Christopher Pine who never grew out of you know university politics. Still played it all the way through. Didn't care about the, the policies as such, but just played the politics. And uh, that's given us very poor government for the last couple of decades, and increasingly so. And uh, you see Morrison the other day, he announced that his strategy as Prime Minister is to wedge the other side. Every time we have a parliamentary week, I'm going to ask them a few questions, put them on the notice, and I'm going to wedge them with the issues that we we raise, you know, drug testing, welfare recipients or 
or whatever. And um, that's not good government. I mean, that's got nothing to do with good government. He's still like he's in opposition, trying to score points on the other side, where people would just say, look, just shut up, go back there and take a couple of big issues and run them properly and give us some good government. Solve the problem of housing affordability or cost of power, electricity and gas, or deal with the issues, don't let things drift. But um, that's not the game these days. And that's the trick in opposition as well. Do you be negative mm. to the negativity or do you ignore the negativity mm. in a sense if it's coming from the opposite mm. side and try and run with your own agenda? But, see, but then you looked at because you're in opposition, what does it really matter? Abbott too is my old press secretary, um, unfortunately, um, in the sense <laughs> his, his, entire, his entire strategy was, mean, to just be ne- was to be negative, right? <laughs> his whole thing as leader of the opposition was to be negative, to disagree with whatever Gillard or Rudd said or wanted to do. And, and to exaggerate the consequences, you know, carbon price, you know, sort of, you know, have all d- dire consequences, close down Wyala, you know, like all rubbish arguments. But he was allowed to run them. Government didn't respond. He ran them. And over time, I think he, he contributed to the disruption of those two governments, uh, even though they did a good job on each other, Rudd and Gillard. I mean, the <laughs> bottom line was that he came out winning an election, not on policy, just on having destroyed the government. So you'd imagine that given what's happening in politics on both sides of the floor, if you want to put it that way, in the House mm. of Representatives, the opposition and the government, that with the the overwhelming feeling that you're pointing out about mm. career politicians and lack of big thinking, it's mm. short-termism, it's a lot of noise, that this is just going to roll on and continue and it's going to take something extraordinary. Until somebody or- stands up and says, you know, look, it's, it's going to be about leadership. I'm going to lead on a couple of issues. See, one of the things that happened with Turnbull, for example, was he when he took over from Abbott, there was a huge national sigh of relief, you know, and uh, Malcolm believes in climate change, he believes in same-sex marriage, he believes in tax reform, and whatever. And uh, these expectations were huge and he said all the right things. I'm going to re-establish cabinet government, all issues are on the table, you know, going to methodically work through and deliver good government, good cabinet-based government. Didn't last very long. I mean, everything came off the table and in the end he didn't didn't do very much at all. Indeed, when Malcolm lost for the second time, I got a whole lot of media requests from around the world and they only, they only ever had one question, what did Malcolm do wrong? You know, and I had to say, well, he didn't do too much wrong. His problem was he didn't do too much at all because mm. he didn't do anything against any of those expectations and in the end he was seen to have, have not delivered. Because and, he can't or he, oh, he, he could have, it wasn't but he, smart uh, he enough let, he got, to do. Uh, he let the backbench run up on him, you know, he didn't manage them. Uh, he didn't want to take an issue because he thought it would have political downside. I mean, populism in the end fails and that's the one lesson they're all going to have to learn. And populism in the end fails. You can sustain it for a while. You can look very popular. You can do what, you know, what you think the, the, you know, now we call them the quiet Australians. I think Richard Nixon called them the silent majority. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't take any of that for granted, but that's what they're doing and mm. they're, they're, they're being populist. And one of the most populist leaders I can ever remember was Muldoon in New Zealand. His whole strategy was to dominate the evening. This is pre-social media, but yeah, when was dominate this? the evening in the early 80s. Okay. Dominate the evening news, radio and television news every single day. He'd say something in each day which would be outlandish enough to guarantee him head by head, headline front story every time. And the problem was in the end, New Zealand got just was collapsing. Its credit rating was being downgraded every other month. I mean, its debts were huge and, you know, the place was just a basket case. That was a result of a Muldoon-type strategy. 
And and the interesting thing is when he was replaced by Longy, who came in without much policy, but he brought in based broad based reform in everything, every industrial relations, tax, everything. Uh, you know, quite disruptive, but done really with the electorate saying, "Hang on, we got some leadership he here." Apart the he got re-elected. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when he didn't expect he he could uh, he he could yeah. survive. That was a good example of an extremely populist type leader who in the end failed and the replacement was somebody who stood up and said, you know, and Longy didn't, he was quite honest. He just sort of said to the Treasury guys and the policy people, if I implement what I've said, will I get re-elected? And they said, no way. You've got to solve these problems. These are huge problems. They're nationally significant problems. You've got to make some dramatic changes. So he did them all and um, all in go and very flat out, massive change. And, um, you know, in a sense, you're going to have to have somebody in Australia stand up and say, we've got, we can't keep going on this very short-term path. We've got, you know, long-term structural issues here, and not just climate, but productivity is as flat as a tack. Therefore, wages will stay in the medium term flat. You know, these, these are big issues, a lot of inequality rising, uh, things like Newstart, which hasn't been increased in real terms for 24, 25 years. So the bottom end of the income scale is just getting pilloried day in, day out. Uh, with a with a you know an unsustainable position, but they don't want to deal with these issues. Uh, somebody's going to have to stand up and deal with them. Wonder who? Not you. You're done. No, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like it. I entertain <laughs> myself. Entertain myself with you these days. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yeah, and observe as well. I mean, yeah, it sounds like just a, a cycle. Um, no matter if you lose an election or win an election, everyone's in this cycle, mm. and it's whoever's making the most noise feels like. They're the ones that are feeling yeah, good about it, themselves. It, it is a global phenomenon. You have people like Trump and like like Johnson and, you know, like Erdogan and so on who are just populist. But whether in the end they make America great again or they save the UK or whatever, it's a big question because I doubt in all those cases they will. And then in the end there's going to be the day of reckoning where people say, well, just go back to good, stable, predictable government. I mean, good, good government's largely pretty boring. You know, it is. That's the problem. You know, and you sort of, and, and Morrison's trying to dull it down, be more boring, but his focus is on the opposition. Just do a couple of issues. Just pick a couple of things that people want fixed. Housing affordability would be a good start. It's a whole you know, generation of millennials and, and Gen Zs aren't going to be able to buy a house in, in the traditional sense in either Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane. There's hope for the future. Uh, John, thank you so much for your time. It's um, been enlightening in many respects and we covered a a fair bit of territory, not just in terms of what the Labor Party do about losing an election, but politics in general. Um, Really enjoyed the chat and thank you for your time. No problem. You shouldn't listen to me. I failed. (laughs) We all fail. (laughs) Thanks, mate. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.